These blessings are not conditional. They are unconditional because they are covenantal. The covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, chose to elect a people that He would love. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. 2 John, let's um, pick up in 2 John, beginning in verse 1, and I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're just going to look at the first six verses of 2 John, and I'll spend some time at the beginning introducing to you this epistle, but let me begin by reading in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. You may be seated, and let's ask the Lord his help through prayer as we look at this text together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to begin a new study in Second John. Lord, we ask that you might give us the power of the Holy Spirit to understand these verses, to understand the very practical truths of truth and love, to understand that they are compatible, they aren't antithetical, they go together. We must be people of truth on the one hand, and on the other hand, we must be people of love. So help us to be people of truth and love as we study this passage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Second John and also Third John are some of the shortest epistles that we have in all of the New Testament scriptures. As a matter of fact, 2 John, 3 John, Philemon, and Jude, those four epistles are all letters that could have fit on one 10 by 8 sheet of papyrus when they were originally written. And that is even reflected in your own English Bibles. In my Bible, 2 John is just one page. But that doesn't mean that it's an unimportant book. We don't know exactly who wrote 2 John, that is, if we are reading the text itself, because the author does not identify himself, but the title of it, 2 John, um, is because church fathers have affirmed that the Apostle John wrote not just 2 John, but also 1 and 3 John. You have church fathers Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Papyrus, and Origen. They all affirm that the Apostle John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. History also affirms, Bible commentators do as well, that all three of these epistles were written to the same audience. So the recipients are the same. We also don't really know, because um, the text doesn't tell us, exactly when 2nd John was written. John lived um, up into the last century of the first century, up until the last decade of the first century, but there's no mention here of of persecution, at least not explicit persecution under Domitian, and so it's likely that this epistle was written sometime after AD 70, maybe as late as AD 85. 
But the big question is, what exactly is this epistle about? Well, the theme of 2 John is the importance of love and truth. In fact, John encourages the church to continue walking in love and truth because to some degree they were doing that, but there had been false teachers who had crept in uh, to the congregation or congregations that John is writing to, and so they were confused as to how to defend the truth on the other hand and how to love God. The main point that John writes to these Christians about concerns this principle. God's truth, if we really know it, if we really know God's truth, it will cause us to love rightly. That's simply what the message is. So from 2 John, we learn that we are to love those who live according to the truth. We learn that that love enjoys the company of God's people. We learn that love remains faithful to the truth on the one hand, and on the other hand, it loves God so much and is so familiar with the truth of his word that Christians are able to discern a false teacher when they see one because a Christian understands they must avoid false teachers for their own eternal good. John also teaches us here that false teachers should be viewed as a threat to the church. We aren't to welcome them into our houses. We're not to welcome them into the church. We are encouraged to avoid false teachers. In today's vernacular, the warning that John gives is a warning against what we might call empty ecumenism. That is this idea that that love is all you need. And that if another person professes to be a believer or another teacher professes to be a believer, it is our duty to love them with no discernment. That is empty ecumenism. And John is writing against that. Now that gives us sort of a head start in understanding this letter, but we really need to understand what is lurking behind John's words. And that is, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, the presence of false teachers who had infiltrated the ranks of this congregation. These were teachers who had no real credentials. They they were not commissioned by the apostles. In fact, they were essentially shysters. They, They were hucksters or charlatans. Now, not all of them necessarily were deceptive on purpose. Some, some of them might have been sincere, but nevertheless, they were sincerely wrong because of what they were teaching. And these traveling teachers, we don't know exactly how they got their start. The, the early Christian document known as the Didache speaks about wandering preachers who refer to themselves as apostles, or excuse me, as prophets. And the Didache actually labels these false prophets as Christ mongers. Some of you might be familiar with that term. That was a term that was invented by the early church. A Christ monger was someone who abused the teachings of Christ. At some point after the apostles died off and scripture was complete or nearly complete, um, the prophets were no longer necessary in the early church. And with the apostles dying off, the only two offices of the church are elders and deacons. Well, there's actually a mentioning of an elder in this church in 3 John. His name is Diotrephes. He was an elder who obviously didn't understand truth. He didn't understand the word of God that much. And perhaps he, on the one hand, headed off these false teachers in sort of a harsh, undignified way. But he never explained to those in his congregation why they should avoid them. Or maybe he welcomed them into the church. At either rate, John is concerned that the Christians he is writing to are going to embrace these false teachers because they don't have someone in the church that is teaching them what the truth actually is and how to discern a false teacher from a true one. In fact, a comparison can be made between the first century and our own day. In our modern day, we are so connected globally through technology, especially social media, But as you well know, this has a positive and a negative effect. Positively, we're able to reach parts of the world we were never able to reach before, and that is a good thing. But negatively, we expose ourselves on the World Wide Web and other technologies to a host of ungodly and wicked depravity. Well, the same sort of thing was going on in the first century with the Pax Romana. That led to this sort of empire-wide web of intricate roads connecting people of different languages and cultures within the Roman Empire, and it led to a positive effect and a negative effect. The positive effect is all of these roads 
led to the spreading of the gospel among pagans, those who didn't know Hebrew, those who did not know the Old Testament scriptures. But negatively, all of these cultures coalescing together created this sort of melting pot of religious ideas, a syncretism, a a sort of syncretism that's similar in our own day. And in this day and age, there weren't hotels. So when preachers traveled through different towns, Christians often welcomed them into their homes. They would get free board, and then they would charge high exchange rates for their teaching services. The gospel was spreading quickly, but because the apostles were dying off and these local churches were autonomous, that meant they were independent, they had their own authority with their own elders and their own pastor, it was hard to hold these false teachers accountable. They were everywhere and they were peddling their message from town to town, claiming to have fresh insight and fuller knowledge. I'm reminded of John Calvin. During the Reformation, he used to speak of the little lambs that he pastored that were deceived by the Roman Catholic Church. Well, you can think of this letter that John writes as a letter to little lambs who are immature in their faith. They're being taken advantage of by false teachers. Now, who were these false teachers? Well, there were two primary groups of false teachers in the first century. First was the Judaizers, and they said that faith in Jesus was good, but it wasn't enough. You also needed to be circumcised, and you must observe the Sabbath. And if you were not circumcised, and you did not observe the Sabbath, you were not a Christian, no matter how much faith you had in Jesus. These Judaizers were basically Jewish. The second category of false teachers were the Gnostics. These were the spiritual elites. These were the ones who claimed they had a higher and a deeper knowledge. Now you need to remember that before AD 66, John and all the other apostles were forced to leave Jerusalem because of persecution. And that left John. He actually was the last and longest living apostle. He died as as an old man on the island of Patmos. And maybe he's writing as the only apostle left. And he's writing against these false teachers. Now, the teachers that John opposed were primarily those of the Gnostic variety. So there's a little story in church history. Polycarp tells this story that John, because he lived in Ephesus, went into the bathhouse of Ephesus. That's where you went to take a bath. But when he went in there, he saw a man by the name of Serinthius, who was a false teacher, and he ran out of the bathhouse, and he said, let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthius, the enemy of the truth, is within. Serinthius taught false notions concerning Christ. And the Christology, as we read 2 John, makes it very plain in this letter, the Christology of these Christians was off. You've heard of Gnosticism, as I just mentioned it. It really wasn't fully developed until the second century. But in John's day, in the first century, there was this early incipient form of Gnosticism already circulating. What was Gnosticism? Well, it essentially was a conglomeration of Jewish, pagan, and Christian ideas. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So these Gnostic teachers taught that they had a deeper and a higher knowledge than everyone else. They were the spiritual elites. They taught a sort of philosophical dualism that pitted the body against the spirit, resulting in a view that said the body was the prison house of the soul. And essentially what this meant was that they viewed the world as evil, they viewed your body as evil, they viewed the God of the Old Testament as evil because he created a world with material substances, we're not all just spirits floating around, therefore the God of the Old Testament is evil, And they also denied Christ's incarnation and they denied Christ's bodily resurrection. Now, this resulted in a heresy called docetism. This was the idea that the sinless Christ could not have a body because a body would make him evil. A body would tinge him with evil. Dakeo is where docetism comes from. Dakeo is the Greek word to seem. They would say that it only seemed that Christ had a physical body. Really, he was a spirit. Going back to Serinthius, Serinthius taught 
that the Spirit of Christ descended on the man Jesus at his baptism. Now, just think about that language. That is not correct. The Spirit of Christ descended on the man Jesus at his baptism? No. The man Jesus was the God-man, and it was the Holy Spirit that descended upon this truly God and truly human man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Gnosticism denied the humanity of Christ. And therefore, it undermined even substitutionary atonement because Jesus had to be a man, didn't he, in order to represent sinners. He came as the second Adam. So if he wasn't truly a man, then our atonement was not an actuality. It wasn't a fact. So these Gnostics were undermining the gospel by denying the humanity of Jesus. And so this Former fisherman, this son of Zebedee, this son of thunder, as Jesus called him in Luke chapter 9, writes to tell these Christians that we are to love others, but we are to love others within the limits that God's truth or God's law allows. Think about it this way. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13, Paul said, faith Hope and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Faith, hope, and love. Between those three, the most important is love. But guess what? Paul did not mention truth in that passage. And if he would have mentioned truth, he would have said truth is a greater priority of love. Because if you cannot know who God is or you do not know who God is and you do not know God's truth, you can't know how to love. So John writes to tell us that love has bounds that the truth, that, uh, love has the bounds that the truth of the Bible gives to us. So we just want to look at these opening verses, the first six verses, because in these verses, the Apostle John shows us how we can walk in love and in truth. So he's speaking about both love and truth. He doesn't just want us to walk in love, nor does he just want us to walk in truth. He wants us to walk in truth and love, so he speaks about both of them. But he does it from the angle of love. First, he describes to us love declared. Secondly, love defined. And then third, love defended. First of all, note with me in verses 1 through 3, John speaks about love declared. Here the Apostle John opens his letter with a declaration of love's universal and unconditional features. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, he says that love is universal for the Christian. Verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now that identifies for us both the writer, who we've already said was the Apostle John, as well as the recipient. Sort of a, a strange way to refer to the church, the elect lady and her children, we might think. And John doesn't identify himself. He just refers to himself as the elder. It's the Greek word presbyteros. In contexts such as 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5, we know that presbyteros is an office of the church, an elder of the church. But since he refers to himself as the elder, this seems to be some sort of nickname. John was not an elder, he was an apostle. Because of his status, and also because of his older age, and also because he resided at Ephesus in Asia Minor and exerted an extreme amount of influence over the churches because most of the other apostles were dead, he was affectionately referred to as a nickname by the name The Elder. He doesn't even mention his name because everyone knew who he was. He was John, the beloved Elder. And so the affectionate nickname they referred to him by is followed by John giving to this church an affectionate name. He calls them the elect lady and her children, notice this, whom I love in truth. Now some have taken away from the sincere love that John had for the church because they say that the elect lady was an actual person. In the Greek, it's eclecta curia. But they reverse the word order in Greek to Korea eclecta, lady elect, as if this is the matriarch of the church and she has a title. She is lady elect. I hope you understand this is wrong on the surface, first of all, because if there was a woman named eclecta, then she must have also had a sister named eclecta or elect. Because down in verse 13, John says, the children of your eclecta sister greet you. This is not a proper name. Secondly, 
it would be inappropriate for John, an apostle, to write to another woman in the church who has children in an affectionate, almost romantic way. And third of all, it was common in antiquity and even today to refer to cities or to countries as, um, as a lady. For example, Babylon is referred to as a whore in Revelation because she seduced the nations. She is that city that opposes God's righteous and eternal city. And even in our own day, we speak about Lady Liberty, don't we? So this is a nickname that John gives to the church. She is the elect lady. And her children refer to the members of the church. Why does John do this? Well, because he loves the church and he declares his love for the church. He says, whom I love in truth. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. John wants them to know he loves the church. You say, well, why does he write in in this way, not identifying himself and referring to the church as a lady? Well, this could have been a clandestine way to speak in case the letter fell into the authorities' hands. And if the authorities came across it, they would think this is maybe just a personal letter rather than an apostolic church business letter because the authorities were persecuting Christians. But most importantly, John declares his love for the church, who he calls the elect lady and her children, because scripture is replete with instances of referring to God's people as the elect. For instance, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Or Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Or Colossians 3.12, the Bible speaks of God's chosen ones. Or 2 Timothy 2.10, it speaks of the church as, um, Paul speaks to the church and says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the elect. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion. 1 Peter 2.9, he later calls the church a chosen race, an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Or Revelation 17.14, John refers to Jesus as the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. So it's the elect lady, he's referring to the church. This is not a person, this is a personification of the church to bring out God's love for the church itself. You're familiar with Paul's words in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his own body, and is himself its savior. Jesus is the head of the church. He gave his life up for the church, his elect bride. Revelation 21.9, it refers to the church as the bride, the wife of the lamb. Even in places that are maybe somewhat strange, like 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul takes the metaphor of the church and he speaks of the church as the bride of Christ to say that those who had converted to Christ under his preaching, he he says, you are betrothed to one husband, referring to Christ, in order to present you to him as a pure virgin. But they had been unfaithful because of their unrepentant sin. They were like an unfaithful spouse. You can even go to the Old Testament where Israel is referred to as the daughter of Zion or where Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2.2 refers to Israel as the bride of God. Or you could go to places like Galatians 4.26 where Paul refers to Jerusalem as his mother, as, as the mother of the church. So the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, this is not a reference to a person, it's a personification of the church. Now, who was this church? Well, it was probably a church, one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. But notice very carefully, John declares his love for them. He says, whom I love in truth. But not only does he declare his love for them, he speaks about how natural it is, how universal it is for all Christians everywhere to love other Christians. Because he goes on to say at the end of verse 1, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. In other words, it is a universal reality that Christians will be full of love and will love other Christians who know the truth, verse 1 says. The truth refers to the faith 
once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. It refers to the good deposit that was entrusted to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1. The the truth here is is the body of Christian doctrine. And note there that word love in the Greek is agapao. Which, which does not refer to sentimental love, it refers to willful love. So here's the idea John is expressing. He's saying this, if God chose to love others, that is the elect, then it is universally true that the elect are to choose to love others. That's what he's saying. That knowledge of the truth creates a loving bond between all those who share it. I hope you understand this morning that the thing that draws us together are not common interests. Now, you might like sports like I like sports. Or you might like something else like someone else likes something else. But we are not drawn together because of common interests. No, the magnet of fellowship is our common truth. The body of doctrine. What has been passed down to us. And so our common bond in truth gives us a common bond to one another. John doesn't have a corner on love. He says to the elder elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. He's saying that all Christians everywhere universally love one another. As one person has said, the communion of love is as wide as the communion of faith. And I think that's well put. We ought to love other Christians that are not members of this church. We ought to love other Christians that are members of perhaps another denomination. But John then expands on this universal nature of Christian love because he tells us not that it's not merely a matter of knowledge, but it's a matter of power. Notice verse 2. Here's why we love. Because of the truth, John says, that abides in us. And will be with us forever. It's amazing. In three verses, the first three verses, John uses the word truth four times. Because his main point is that truth must always govern our experiences of love. Now, it is true, we can sometimes have real common ground with unbelievers. But that common ground is always going to be superficial. But we can always have common ground with fellow believers Because as verse 2 says, because of the truth. And the reason, as John expresses it in verse 2, is because something transformational and supernatural has taken place in the heart of all Christians. What is it? John says, because of the truth that abides in us. All Christians, in other words, have the capacity to love because truth is within us. As James says, We have been brought forth or born again by the word of truth, James 1.18. And because we share Jesus Christ, who is truth incarnate, he is the way and the truth and the life, John 14.6. And because he indwells us with his spirit, he therefore gives us the power to love. Remember what Jesus said. He said, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 14, 17. Jesus says the spirit will be with you forever. And notice how John copies that language of Jesus in verse two. He says that truth abides in us and will be with us forever. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciples. So we are called to abide in Christ by abiding in his word because his word is full of truth so that we agree with Christ. After all, we're united with him. We are one with him. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 2 that we can come to the point where we have the very mind of Christ. We can think like Christ. We can know the truth that Christ has given to us in the scriptures. So what is it that empowers this? It's this internal force of Jesus, of the truth within us, that results in this external reality of love. It is in truth that we love, and it is because of truth that we love. And as we're going to see, Christian truth tells us both how we love, according to God's laws, and why we love. God loves us, so we can't help to love one another forever that's the language jesus used in john 14 17 and that's the language john uses in verse 2 truth will be with us forever the implication is we should love forever let me ask you a question is truth eternal 
and unchanging? And did John just say that truth abides in us? It abides in us forever. Therefore, love is eternal and unchanging. It is forever. You see, John's trying to get us to see at the beginning that love and truth are compatible. They are not antithetical. Love and truth are not opposed. They work hand in hand with one another. Unchanging truth, if you know it, results in unchanging love. You could put it this way. The truth of God holds us and we hold on to the truth so we cannot resist to hold on to others in love. That's John's simple point. But Christian love can only be truly universal in the powerful way that it is, as John's just described in verses 1 and 2, if it's also unconditional and the way we've received it from God. So love is universal for the Christian, but it's also unconditional from God. Notice verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. He mentions three things here, grace, mercy, and peace. And what he's telling us is that these are all expressions of God's unconditional love. You study the other epistles in the Bible, and you understand a little bit about letter writing in the first century. They always began letters in the first century with a one-word greeting. And the one word was chirine. It was just that word greeting. They would say greeting or greetings and then Begin the body of the letter. But biblical writers, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, change the usual opening of a letter to Christianize it. They change it from chirine, greeting, to charis, grace. It's sort of a Christian twist to show that our common bond is found in the gospel. And that's exactly how John greets these Christians. He begins with verse 3, grace. But it's not only grace, he also says mercy And peace. Now grace is simply God's unmerited divine favor. It is undeserved. It's a result of his unconditional love. Mercy is the fact that you've received forgiveness instead of judgment. And then peace is the result of grace and mercy. What does Paul say in Romans 5.1? Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And peace does not involve just the the absence of hostility as if there's a ceasefire. No, this is the presence of his care. It's the safety of God. Think of Psalm 23. The peace of God is the shalom of God. It's his covenantal pledge, his commitment to us that not only will he not harm us, but that he will save us. In fact, the Bible says and the gospel teaches that God saves us by himself and for himself from himself. This is unconditional love. Note these three blessings, grace, mercy, and peace. These are not just John's wish list. And they're not just John's prayer list. Because notice he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. That threefold promise of his unconditional love for us through Christ is Trinitarian. It is based on the covenant of redemption from God the Father, as verse 3 says, and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. These blessings are not conditional. They are unconditional because they are covenantal. The covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, chose to elect a people that He would love. And it says... He will be with us. Or it says grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. There's an eternality to this. And the end of verse 3 says in truth and love. Because these two complete one another, don't they? In God's economy, in the Trinity, there is both truth and there is love. And John is trying to get us to see that in the economy of our lives, in the body of Christ, there must be truth and there must be love. He's declaring love by saying, look, it is universal and it is unconditional. It comes from God. If you have unconditionally received the grace and mercy and peace through the gospel, you ought to love. True Christian love is always expressed in the context of truth. You can't have love without truth. So the threefold blessing that John wants us to see is Trinitarian. The end of verse 3 
in truth and love. Truth refers to the fulfilled promises. He has remained true and faithful to his word. And love refers to the unconditional reception of these promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why we utter our amen to God for his glory. So John opens the whole letter by setting the stage in love declared. But that then moves John number two to speak about love defined. Love has been declared for all Christians and from God to us, but now love defined in verses four and five. And we're going to see here that love is always attached to truth. John's already hinted at that. But he begins to define love, first of all, by its nature. Notice verse four. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. He's saying that true love is truthful by nature. And he's, he doesn't mention anything about love here in verse 4. He saves that for verse 5. But for now, he commends most of them because he says, I rejoice greatly to see that you were walking in the truth. I mean, the pastor's greatest joy, the thing that calls him to be the most happy, an apostle, an elder, is that his children are walking in obedience. 3 John 4, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And and that's what John is doing here. He's rejoicing here in verse 4 because he was able to find some of his children walking in the truth. He views the church as his spiritual children and he's pleased to report that at least some of them are walking in the truth, not all of them. And that leads me to wonder, did the ones walking in truth go to John and tell him that some weren't walking in truth, that some were being sucked in by these False teachers, perhaps. But John says, walking in truth by some of them was good because he says, notice at verse 4, we were commanded to do so by the Father. Walking in truth was so important to John that John would say something like this. He would say, if you, don't, if you are not walking in the truth, then you're probably not a true believer. In fact, um, that's exactly what he said in 1 John 2. Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Either some in this church were not Christians Or some were guilty of a sin that was public they hadn't repented of. We know that there's no such thing as perfection in this lifetime. 1 John 3, 2, when we see Him, we'll finally be like Him. The church will always be a mixed bag on this side of heaven. But we also should be careful not to seek to have a perfect church. Because if you seek to have a perfect church, you just drive people away. And yet John is saying, you're not going to have a perfect church, but here's the deal. We've been commanded by the Father to walk in truth. We've been commanded by Him to do this. This is no um, minimal thing. This is extremely important. In fact, other biblical writers speak about the importance of this. James, for example, puts it in very metaphorical language. He says in James 1.22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror where he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, folks, obedience to the truth is serious because God commands it. And the more truth you know, the more your father that commanded you to walk in truth will hold you culpable. And the children of Israel are an example. Amos 3.1, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, God says, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Judgment begins with the household of God. So walking in truth is critically important. Now, we need to pause for a moment because given the fact that John opens his whole letter using the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ and the individual members as children, I think it's appropriate to say that God the Father is the man 
of God's house, the church. And therefore, he expects us to walk according to his ways. God is the man of God's house, not some mere man. It is God the Father who has commanded us to walk in obedience. Turn back with me to 1 John chapter 1 just for a moment. And notice how John says this in his first epistle, 1 John 1 verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. Chapter 2 verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Chapter 3 and verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. So what does it mean or what does it look like to be walking in the truth? Well, fundamentally it means you live under the authority of God's word, you confess God's word, you believe God's word, this whole body of Christian doctrine found in the scriptures, but practically it means you obey its standards. And its standards are summarized in love. The truth of Scripture is the route we travel. And you can't reach west by traveling north. We've been given the Holy Spirit, which is sort of like that voice of our navigation device that tells us when we need to make a U-turn, when we need to repent and go the other way. The Spirit of God indwells us. The truth of God indwells us. We've confessed the truth of God. Therefore, true believers will walk in truth. As John said in 1 John 1, 7, it's equivalent to walking in the light. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So walking in truth is important. And I want you to understand today that to walk in truth is a comprehensive living of the Christian life. Walking in truth means, first of all, walking in the promise of newness of life. Paul said in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we've been buried with him through a baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Walking in the truth is walking in the promise of the newness of life. Secondly, it's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walking in the truth is also walking in the proof of our good works. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Walking in truth also means walking in the pleasure of God, walking in a worthy way. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Walking in the truth also means walking in the particulars of wisdom. Ephesians 5, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the time, most of your time because the days are evil. Sixth, walking in the truth means walking in preparation for the consummated kingdom. I hope you're preparing for the consummated kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted and encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. A walking in truth also involves walking in consistency with your profession of faith. 1 John 2.6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he, that is Jesus walked. Walking in truth also means walking in the promise of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. You know what that means? It means that a walk in truth is also a walk in trusting God's promises. To walk in truth means to walk in the path God has you on. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A walk in truth embraces the trials that God has ordained. So to walk in truth is comprehensive. To walk in truth means we walk in the promise of newness of life. It means we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It means we walk in the proof of good works. It means we walk in the pleasure of God. It means we walk in the particulars of wisdom. It means we walk in preparation for the consummated kingdom. It means we walk in accordance with our profession. It means we walk in accordance with the promises of God. It means we walk on the path God's placed before us, whatever that is. And it means we walk also, number 10, in the predicted blessings. Remember what Jesus said, Luke eleven twenty eight. 28, blessed are those 
who hear the word of God and observe it. Do you believe that? If you do, you obey the word of God. You'll be blessed. John 13, 17, if you know all these things, you are blessed, Jesus says, if you do them. And you say, wow. So that's all I have to do is obey. I can just staunchly defend the truth of God's word, meticulously obey it, Now watch yourself, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 13, because that's not all. What does Paul say here? Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noising gong or a clingy cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am what? Nothing. If I give away all I have, I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then Paul says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. For tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. Verse 13, but love will always abide. Remember, I hope you've not forgotten, love is in accordance with truth. They go hand in hand. If the truth is unchanging and we're marked by truthful ways, then we won't just walk in truth, we will walk in love. And that's why John goes on as he's really defining love. He's defined it by its nature. Now he's going to define it by its nurture. Notice verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, But the one we have had from the beginning, here it is, that we love one another. So you didn't mention love in verse 4, but he was getting to it. And what he's saying here is that the love we say we have is more than words. It's more than a corporate confession. It's practical. It's real. It's something you can see. And notice the, the loving way that John speaks. First of all, he asks them, and now I ask you to love one another. He's an apostle. He could have commanded them under the authority of Jesus Christ. And yet he says, I'm going to gently ask you. And notice how he addresses them again. And now I ask you, dear lady, not just lady, but dear lady. He calls the church a lady again. And then his appeal that we love one another. Now a father as head of his house, should not have to tell his family constantly to love one another. If you are a godly man, your family will love one another because you will teach your family to do that. You will nurture that in your family, not only by the word of God, but by your example. But that doesn't mean there aren't times in which a father needs to make a loving appeal to remind his family to treat each other with love. And that's really what John The beloved elder is doing. He's making an appeal to the church, to the family of God here in verse 5. He's asking them to nurture the love that they have for one another. And notice, it's interesting, he says here, not as though I were writing you a new commandment. The command to love one another is an ancient law. It's as old as creation. Yea, it goes back even beyond that, all the way to the Trinity. Remember what Jesus said. And John 17, I'm in them, they in me, I love them, you love me, we love them. That's my translation, but that's basically what he says. Because as you have loved me, I have loved them, Jesus says. Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is in the Old Testament. It's repeated in the New Testament, Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So you have in the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments, love for God, principles for loving God, and in the second second five principles for loving our neighbor. It's not a new commandment, John says. So in one sense, love is not a new commandment. It's an old one. But what does Jesus say in John chapter 13? Just turn back there. In John 13 and verse 34, Jesus says, we'll pick up in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you, 
You'll seek me just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 34, this is interesting. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, how can Jesus say it's a new commandment and John say it's not a new commandment? Well, because by the time that John wrote it, it was no longer a new commandment. Jesus had already given it. And when Jesus calls it here a new commandment, he doesn't mean that Mosaic law didn't have love in it. He means that by His incarnation, by His crucifixion, by His resurrection, love takes on a deeper meaning. That the standard of love is now seen in the Gospel. That that Christ Himself has modeled for us what it means to love others. John 13, 1, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That, that is true love. That's the greatest love ever demonstrated. In fact, John says in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us, because Jesus gave his life for us. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So it's only new in the sense that the gospel gives it deeper meaning. The gospel gives to you through Christ a picture of what true sacrificial love looks like. And not only that, but it's a new commandment in the sense that We are now in the kingdom of God. It's been inaugurated by the blood of uh, the new covenant. Spiritual darkness has passed away. The light of the new covenant has dawned. Paul says in Galatians 1.4, He gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul says in Colossians 1.13 that He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And what does Jesus speak about when he speaks about the kingdom? He speaks about it as a leavening process. And it grows. So as the light of God's kingdom grows in the world, the love of God's people grows as well. Now what type of love does John want us to nurture? First of all, he wants us to nurture universal love. What did Jesus say? He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? We should have a universal love for everyone created in the image of God. Secondly, we should have a congregational love. Paul commends the Thessalonians. He says, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And he praises the Thessalonians for that. And then Paul in Galatians 6.10 says that um, we are to do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we are to be marked by universal love. We are to be marked by congregational love. We're also to be marked by doctrinal love. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. We have a duty to love other true Christians. Those who are false Christians and false professors we can pray for, but we are not to associate with them and fellowship with them and demonstrate a sort of love to them that might make them think we approve of their false teaching. We are to be marked by universal love and congregational love and doctrinal love and then fourth, habitual love. That's what John's saying. We're to nurture this love. Listen, if everyone was equal in terms of getting along with, then John would never have to write this epistle. Jesus would never have to command us to love. It's a command, which means we need to create habits like praying for those who are difficult to love. Don't you think that God knows that that person is difficult to love, God himself has to love that person. Pray for that person. Serve that person. Treat that person with kindness. And when we do, here is John's point, because the Holy Spirit of truth abides in us, it will nurture a more natural love for that person that's difficult to love. See, John is trying to tell us that Christianity is not just theological. It is not just truth-driven. It is ethical. It is love-driven. Truth and love do not oppose one another. So finally, we come to the third thing that John says. He moves from love declared, verses 1 through 3, love defined, verses 4 and 5, now to love defended. Verse 6, and this is love, 
That we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you had from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now, he's really teaching here two principles that are really one principle stated in two different ways. He's basically saying love is obeying, and obeying is love. He's copying off what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments, Jesus says, and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John is saying that love and law have a reciprocal relationship. That Christian love is shaped and fashioned by the moral commands of God. That love and law go together. That love and law belong together. To love the Lord is to obey the Lord, right? We obey the Lord because we love Him as Lord. Deuteronomy 11.1 1, you, you shall therefore love the Lord your God, keep His charge, keep His statutes, keep His rules, and to keep his commandments always. Now some have accused John of arguing in a circular fashion because notice verse 6 again. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Well, John, which is it? Is it truth or love? Is it the commandments of God or is it our affection? And the answer is exactly. It's both of those things. John is arguing in a, in a rather circular way. Um, the Apostle Paul, who also is guilty of arguing in circular fashion from time to time, says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10 of Romans 13, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's all John is saying in verse 6. That's all he's saying. Now let me give you some bite-sized particulars to swallow this sort of circular argument. These are very practical. Number one, I want you to think with me about the balance. Here is the balance between love and law. On the one hand, if you have love without law, that results in self-indulgent license. But on the other hand, if you have law without love, that results in cold-hearted Legalism. You remember, Paul was very clear about this. He said, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love is not a license to live any way we want. Love without law will result in license. It will result in self-indulgence, not caring about what other people say or think going roughshod over people. But on the other hand, law without love results in cold-hearted legalism, doesn't it? And Jesus, Jesus spoke about this. In fact, I'll tell you that Jesus, I've preached through the Gospels a lot, Jesus was the strongest against religious people. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus says, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then he says, you are blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I mean, you're out of balance. Because either on the one hand, you have love without law, so you're self-indulgent. Or on the other hand, you have law without love and you're a cold-hearted legalist. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. We don't have freedom to live any way we please. We have freedom through the gospel, to keep the commandments of God. We are to be lawful, not lawless. We are to be love-filled, not love-emptied. You could think of it this way. The Christian life is like a car. And truth is the engine, apart from which it can't move. But the fuel tank of the Christian cannot be empty of love because love is what drives it. That's the balance. Secondly, think with me about the nuance. Here it is. Love and law inform each other and protect each other. On the one hand, love enables our obedience to the law to not become ritualistic and empty of sincerity. On the other hand, the law prevents our love from being sentimental and sappy and empty of direction and standards. Paul said, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So how can we love someone and never tell them they're living in sin? 
Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, we're to speak the truth in love. So we're to love and speak the truth. So there's the nuance. Third is the assurance. If we love God, then we show up by obeying him. And if we love our neighbor, we are obeying him, which means God loves us. It gives us assurance of our salvation. In fact, if you notice with me in verse 6, the walk according to his commandments is actually parallel, verse 4, with walking in the truth. And both of these, walking according to his commandments, verse 6, walking in truth, verse 4, is parallel, verse 6, when he says to walk in it. Fourth, the experience. Now, it is true that the law of God guides It sometimes gives particulars to the way that we are to love. But remember, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And there is a subjective element to this in which the Holy Spirit might lead us to love in a way that a particular law in Scripture doesn't mention. In fact, in verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. Notice that's in the plural. Commandments is in the plural because the experience of the outworking of law becomes multiple moments and circumstances of obedience. And you can have the surety of knowing that God will give you the grace to obey even when God's word doesn't speak specifically about a situation. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments, the Bible says, are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Because there are times, because you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that you just naturally love in ways that you never imagined you could love. That's God at work in you. So there's the balance and the nuance and the assurance and the experience. But then there's fifth, the perseverance. How do we persevere in loving a difficult person? Because that's what all of you are thinking this morning. You all have in mind someone that's difficult to love. Or maybe you have a particular situation in which you don't know how to express your love and the truth of God. Well, first of all, you need to focus on God's love for you. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. And secondly, you need to focus on God's power in you. What did Paul say? He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, Paul says, I know that my life in one sense is not even a life I'm really living. It's the power of Christ living in me. And the more you realize that, the better you're able to love that difficult person because our union with Christ helps us grow to see his love for us and we can't help but have an overflow of of love for others. After all, Jesus was the epitome of truth. He was true, the embodiment of truth. And he was the embodiment of love. He gave himself on the cross as a sacrifice. He was, on the one hand, the most truthful person that ever walked this earth, and on the other hand, he was the most loving person that ever walked this earth. He is the model, and he is the example. But too many times, passes are given to those who staunchly defend the truth, but they never cover their words with love. And then there are those who who just gush with love and they never speak the truth. Both of those are out of step with what the scriptures teach. Paul said, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's very interesting. In the faith, that is the truth, the body of doctrine, and in the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now there was a man by the name of Diotrephes. He's mentioned in 3 John. He was always right and never wrong. And he was a man that struggled with loving others. So these Christians would have had him on their mind. But the way John defends love here in verse 6 is by basically saying love cannot be divorced from truth and vice versa. Notice that little expression as you have heard from the beginning. In other words, John is saying, look, I can defend the importance of love by the fact that love has been here from the beginning. And truth has been here from the beginning. God created Adam and Eve. He gave them truth. He gave them a law. Do not eat of the tree. He gave them a law written in their hearts. And he loved them. He walked with them in the garden. 
truth and love. Sin was the result of not loving God and not walking in truth. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. He came and walked in truth and he came and demonstrated love by dying on the cross. So John is basically saying love has been here from the beginning. The standard has always been walk in truth Walk in love. Don't walk in love and not walk in truth. Don't walk in truth and not walk in love. Walk in love and walk in truth. These things go together. They don't oppose one another. Father, we thank you for these scriptures which encourage our hearts. Lord, they remind us that if we are truly in Christ, we will powerfully be able to demonstrate the love of God through Christ. And yet at the same time, they are are a reminder to us that We are to have discernment. We are only to love in accordance with the truth of your word, the bounds of truth that are found in Scripture. We are not to love sin. And we are not to demonstrate a sort of love to those who are in sin in a way that might make them think we are okay with the way they're living. We have an obligation to confront others with truth. And yet at the same time, we also have an obligation at times not to confront others, but to pray for others, to pray that your love and your grace might envelop others, that they might come to repentance and see the waywardness of their ways. So Lord, help us as we seek to obey your word. And Lord, as Lord willing, next time we finish out our study of 2 John, we thank you for the scriptures and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.